It's nearly three weeks after Election Day, and we almost know what Congress will look like next year, just in time for our next episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Emily Wilkins, a congressional and campaigns reporter with Bloomberg Government. With me, as always, is one of the top election experts in D.C., our very own Greg Giroux. We spent a lot of time in the past two years talking about redistricting, and now that the first election under the new lines is over, it's time for a postmortem. We'll be joined in a minute by National Democratic Redistricting Committee President Kelly Burton on how much redistricting factored into the current makeup of Congress. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. But first, as always, we bring you Jerome's Gem. Thank you, Emily. Jerome's Gem, a political number of note. I introduce every episode of Down Ballot Counts. And today's gem is nine, the number of U.S. House incumbents who are unseated in the November 8 general election. If that sounds like a low number in a chamber of 435 members, that's because it is, especially in a redistricting year when incumbents sought re-election under newly drawn congressional district lines and had to introduce themselves to voters who weren't familiar with them. But many Republican incumbents were made politically safer under redistricting plans drawn by Republican legislatures and governors, and some Democratic incumbents who were vulnerable to defeat proved resilient in winning new terms amid high inflation and President Joe Biden's mediocre approval ratings. For those down-ballot counts listeners keeping score at home, the nine incumbents were Republicans Yvette Harrell of New Mexico, Steve Shabbat of Ohio, Myra Flores of Texas, and Democrats Tom O'Halloran of Arizona, Al Lawson of Florida, Cindy Axney of Iowa, Tom Malinowski of New Jersey, Sean Patrick Maloney of New York, and Elaine Luria of Virginia. We'll talk more about redistricting coming up in a minute, but that's your Jero's Gem. Solid numbers. Thanks, Greg. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now is Kelly Burton, the president of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Kelly is also a former executive director at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, um, so she knows a lot about elections. And of course, listeners to this show will remember that she came on about a year ago to tell us what states to watch, and we are so psyched to welcome her back. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me again. It's good to be here. So I know at this point there are a few races that are uncalled, but it looks like the makeup of the House is going to be 222 Republicans, 213 Democrats, the exact opposite of what we had this past year. And now that we, we've we got everything mostly counted, I want to just start off with what your biggest takeaways are from the 2022 redistricting. Sure. Um, well, crazy times we are living in. How about that? Um, the, um, you know, I think the first thing I would say is that the Republicans came into the redistricting process with the intention of gerrymandering their way to a House majority for the decade. They they very openly said that they wanted to use the maps to shore up their incumbents, to take competitive seats off the board, and to lock in a Republican House majority for the next 10 years. And what what we see now that the redistricting process is over and we, as you noted, basically know the House makeup for 2020, um, two elections into next year, is that that did not happen. They did not 
not succeed in that goal. I think this is the smallest margin that anyone thought was possible. I think overall, Democrats overperformed expectations, overperformed historic um, trend lines, and the maps were a big initial part of making that happen because we stymied the Republican plan to take those competitive seats off the board, to shrink the battlefield such that it was impossible for Democrats even to compete. We see now that that, in fact, um, did not happen, and Democrats were very competitive. There are a sufficient number of competitive seats on the board because of fair maps, um, and the House is now going to be competitive for the decade. And so with that, though, you still did see some really aggressive Republican redistricting efforts in Florida, in Texas, in Ohio. And those Republican-controlled states ultimately gave the Republicans control of the House. So should Democrats consider adopting more aggressive redistricting when this comes around again in 2030? No, because... If we hadn't stymied the Republican control of redistricting in other places, they would have done that in more places. So the fact that they had, you know, still had control in a handful of states and then maximized their gerrymandering in those states doesn't mean we should have more gerrymandering. It means that we still have work to do to finish out those last remaining states where they have control and they continue to manipulate the maps. Um, for power and for that control. Two, Two things on this. One, we decreased Republican control over redistricting from last decade by more than 20%. So in some of the states that were very gerrymandered last time because they had full control, they didn't have full control again this time. And you see now fair maps in those states. Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Virginia, Michigan, for example. We need to see more of those kinds of changes in states like Texas and Florida and Ohio, um, not more gerrymandering in the other states. And then number two, we are still fighting in those states that you mentioned where they still were able to gerrymander. We have very active lawsuits in the states that still have Republican gerrymandering. So namely Florida, Texas, Ohio, Georgia, we will be, and, and and also Louisiana and Alabama, um, where the Supreme Court just handed them um, two seats because they took our very successful lawsuits off the table for this cycle. Those lawsuits are still active. We fully anticipate for there to be a lot of redistricting lawsuits in the Republican gerrymandering states um, in the 24 cycle. I feel like redistricting is like that song that never ends. Like, you know, it happens yes. <laughs> and there's a lawsuit and then there's another lawsuit. And I also will we'll take the time to point out here that obviously Eric Holder, the chair of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, said that if Democrats win a majority of those lawsuits that, Kelly, you were just talking about, that they should be able to claim majority uh, of the House in 2024. And I'm wondering for you and your particular outlook, I know you just listed a bunch of different states and a bunch of different lawsuits, but are there any particularly coming up in the next several months that we should be paying extra close attention to? Well, yes, there are two redistricting lawsuits in front of the Supreme Court this cycle, actually, um, monumental in its impact, both for redistricting and um, there are in both of the cases kind of larger impacts on those rulings beyond just redistricting. So there's a case where the Supreme Court is revisiting Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And then there's another case where they are um, entertaining what we call the independent state legislature theory, which would function 
traditionally give state legislatures control over all things related to federal elections, including redistricting, which, as you can imagine, would be a travesty for this nation. So both of those Supreme Court cases are incredibly consequential for redistricting um, and for the ripple effect that they could have, not just on redistricting, but on, you know, democracy in general. So I definitely would keep an eye out for both of those cases. Um, And then we also, as I mentioned, you know, well, and I'll say in those cases, um, states like Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia are are kind of caught up in the um, Section 2 case. And then the Independent State Legislature case effectively um, addresses North Carolina, but could also impact other maps as well. So there's a lot at stake in those two Supreme Court cases. Kelly, I also wanted to ask you a little bit about one of the most interesting redistricting stories of the last year, which is what happened in New York. The maps were approved by state legislatures, then they were declared unconstitutional, and redrawing them was left in the hands of a single postdoc fellow at Carnegie Mellon. Democrats ultimately had a rough time with the state. They lost four of their congressional seats. What lessons should Democrats learn from what happened in New York? Good question. Well, I think there's two separate lessons and and two separate things happening in New York. One is what happened with redistricting. And then one is what happened with the elections themselves. You know, what the um, special master's map did in New York was functionally make a handful of seats more competitive. The original map by the Democratic legislature um, tried to make, uh, you know, seats more safe for Democrats. And the special master kind of um, switched things around a little bit and just added more competitive seats into the mix. Um, But then secondly, on the elections, you know, Democrats then in New York lost those competitive seats. And they're the same type of competitive seats that Democrats won elsewhere in the country. So these are Biden plus five, Biden plus nine, you know, Biden plus 15 in some cases. Um, And we won those seats everywhere else and, and lost them in New York. So I think there's a redistricting story. Clearly, the New York redistricting process needs to be reformed. It didn't work on a, on a bunch of levels. Um, so that's a, you know, project for next decade, uh, hopefully. But secondly, on the election, I think, you know, Democrats and, and researchers and, um, you know, pundits will be doing an analysis, I'm sure, of New York elections um, for the next few months, especially once the data comes out, to really understand why Democrats lost those competitive seats in New York when we won those same type of competitive seats everywhere else. And the November 8th elections were the first held under new district lines for state legislatures. Uh, Kelly, what are your takeaways from the results of state legislative elections held under new maps? Yeah, how about that, right? I think a couple things. I think that um, because of the focus and the investment that Democrats have made into the states for the last several cycles, we saw the overperformance by Democrats in a midterm translate down at into the state legislative level. And that is incredible progress for Democrats as a party. I think it's really good for democracy overall. As we all know, you know, the states are the, um, it, you know, they are the, the training ground. They are where democracy happens. They are where these very consequential laws get passed that affect people's lives. And what we saw last decade were a, a number of very gerrymandered state legislatures making laws that were out of touch with the vast majority of the voters in their states. And because of redistricting reform in the states, we've course corrected that, right? So the Michigan legislature, for example, was one of the most gerrymandered legislatures all decade. 
you know, really um, extreme legislation coming out of that legislature all cycle. And then um, we and others helped to push forward an independent redistricting commission in Michigan that drew the lines instead of the legislature. And that map is now very fair. And as a result, Democrats won both houses of the legislature because the maps now enable the voters to make the decision and voters are electing Democrats in Michigan right now. So Michigan is going to have a totally different makeup in its legislature than all of last decade. And I think you're going to see consequential legislation that's different than last decade come out of that legislature. So that's one example similar we saw in Pennsylvania. Um, There is just really good you know, progress happening in the states, both through fair maps and through an overall investment by Democrats into state legislative races. It's incredibly exciting. I think you're going to see it continue through this decade. Um, Democrats are no longer asleep at the wheel in terms of the importance of the states and the down ballot races. Mm-hmm. And you've made a couple of references to, uh, quote, fair maps. Um, what, what does that phrase mean? What metrics can one employ to determine when a congressional map is, quote, fair or unfair? Good question. There are a series of very wonky um, math-based redistricting metrics that we use and that academics and courts and others use to define fairness, things like the efficiency gap, things like mean-median analysis. Um, There's a series of kind of math-based metrics um, to define fairness. And when we say that there are more fair maps now than there have been, um, you know, in the in the last several decades. That is based on those metrics. It's based on, um, you know, f- fair metrics of fair redistricting. Um, you know, really, one way to think about it is looking at it's kind of think about a bell curve. And there are, you know, there can be a bunch of maps in the middle of the bell curve that are fair, and then there are maps at the extreme kind of tails of the bell curve. What we had last decade were a lot of maps in the tails. And really in the extreme version, that's how you can know that it's gerrymandered because it's kind of in the extreme tail of the bell curve. And now instead we have much more maps um, kind of in that bell curve. In fact, by redistricting standards, 75% of the states have fair maps, fair congressional maps. Um, As we mentioned, you know, the vast majority of those 25 states that uh, 25% of the states that are left are Republican gerrymandered states. That's why we're still fighting them. Um, But when we say fair, we are basing it off of the standard redistricting metrics of fairness. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the uh, New York as a state. We'd like to see the uh, uh, commission process or the redistricting process uh, reformed. I guess not all commissions are created equal um, in these so-called commission states. Um, you know, some are, you know, depending on who populates these commissions. Um, what, what, what should a commission look like in your view? What, um, what, what, what state is kind of, do you think, an ideal for what a commission process ought to look like? It's a really good question, and um, we uh, we are very schooled in this question because we worked with so many different commissions this time around, and, and we've watched them. Um, and I think we do have some good models. I think the California Commission is a good model. The Colorado Commission is a good model. Um, in some ways, the Michigan Commission is a good model, although room for improvement there um, in a number of ways. So I think there are a couple of things to look for. One is... Um, n- n- nearly zero or zero input from politicians is helpful um, in terms of the process. You know, I think um, there is value to politicians making their voices 
and their opinions known on the maps themselves. They know their districts, they know the regions, and that is valuable. But, um, you know, we see a breakdown when maps go back to legislatures or when legislatures have some type of vote in the process. Um, I think that is, uh, you know, by definition makes it less independent. I think a, a bigger type commission that um, allows for coalition building across parties and also kind of encourages the commission members to maintain their bipartisanship or maintain, um, you know, cooperation. For example, in California, the final maps were a 13-0. They were a unanimous support across the commission members because they worked so hard to stay collaborative the entire time. Um, so, that, you know, I think that's a, a good model. What we saw in Virginia and New York is that the the math of the commission allows for, for stalemate and breakdown. And so you want to have a makeup of a commission that prevents that stalemate. So those are just some kind of um, metrics to look at. But I think what you'll see this cycle is a real focus on um, the, the best practices of commissions and trying to shape future commissions in the, um, you know, kind of in, in the vein of what works versus things that we learned, for example, in New York and Virginia that just don't work. And we know that one, at least one state that will have a new map in 2024, congressional map, that is, is uh, North Carolina, which, um, as you know, in 2022 used a interim one election map imposed by or approved by the state Supreme Court under which uh, Democrats and Republicans both won seven districts, maybe the best outcome Democrats could have hoped for in that state. How will you be able to stop a 2024 proposal from Republicans uh, now that Republicans kept control of the North Carolina legislature and won control of the North Carolina Supreme Court? Yeah, look, North Carolina is a um, a perfect example of what we are talking about here, where the Republican legislature started the redistricting process with a 10-4 map. Their initial proposal was 10 Republican seats and four Democratic seats, which is insane and also very out of touch with the voters of North Carolina and so we sued them on that map and through you know multiple iterations in court we were able to achieve a a fair map as you noted now it's a 50-50 balance um in that in the congressional delegation, which is much more reflective of the 50-50 state of North Carolina. So what we have right now is a fair map. Um, the, the reason, as you said, the map has to be redrawn is because since a court drew it, it's only good for one cycle, so they have to redraw it. The right thing to do is for them to just codify this map and to, you know, just kind of have it as a formality and just secure the map. This is the map that the voters uh, voted on. It's a 50-50 map. It's fair for this state. Um, we don't anticipate that they will do that. And so we are going to work with our partners in North Carolina to fight very hard for a fair map and for maintaining, um, you know, what was achieved in the court-drawn map, which is a map that's reflective of the state. I will say there is no guarantee that just because the Republicans flipped the state Supreme Court, that that means that a state Supreme Court will just codify a gerrymandered map. We have consistently won against gerrymandering in North Carolina. 
We have also consistently won our redistricting lawsuits, even with Republican justices. In fact, we've won with Trump judges and Trump-appointed judges who have voted for our maps in different states because it's just so clear on the merits when it's gerrymandered and when they broke the law. And so if the North Carolina legislature breaks the law, there is no guarantee that a Republican Supreme Court is just going to allow them to do that, right? Look at New York, right? The, the New York court said, no, we're not going to let you go outside of what we think is in the bounds of appropriate. Um, You know, I think that we shouldn't just assume that these courts are partisan. We shouldn't assume that they're just going to allow a legislature to get away with partisan um, manipulation. So we're going to fight very hard at every step of this redraw to maintain the 50-50 map that we have now. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. That was crazy informative, kind of a great roadmap for everything that we're going to have going on in the next couple of years, probably the next 10 years. We'll just keep having you on until we get to 2030. Uh, but that was Kelly Burton, president of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Thank you so much. Redistricting is not over and it's not going to end anytime soon. So let's keep talking. Thank you for focusing on this. It's great to talk with you guys again. This is Down Ballot Counts. Thanks for joining us for Down Ballot Counts today. It was hosted by myself, Emily Wilkins, and Greg Giroux. Our producer is David Schultz, and our executive producer is Josh Block. And because we take our responsibility to ethics and transparency seriously, we're noting here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg Government's parent company, sought the Democratic nomination for president and went on to endorse Joe Biden. Be sure to check out all our great politics coverage at our website, about.bgov.com. We'll see you next time. An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills? I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look like me. Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit all discrimination based on race? You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much. Somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. Only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.